Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 19th audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of the course. Today's episode will talk about reproduction, reproductive justice, and reproductive injustices. Every lecture for this course has triggering content, but this lecture may be particularly triggering. Let's get started. Today's song is Nuguya Nanige by Kalinga. Kalinga means to love in Lingala, and the band is led by Congolese singer Rebecca Mbungu. She sings the song in Lingala, one of the languages of Congo. The song is a tribute to Congolese women, survivors of the torturers of the civil wars that have shed blood across the country. In an article by Pan-African Music, to which I linked in the transcript, she says that the song brings to light those women who suffer from the horrible paradox of giving life while being at the forefront when it comes to count the victims. Ninguya Nanige, which means my power, is both a cry for help and a spark in the hope that the world understands what women stand for, peace, love, and the strongest way to rebuild society, a society from ashes of conflict, end quote. Singer Rebecca Mungu and guitarist Arno Estor regard the song as a more urgent, more than urgent, incitation to respect women's strength in a profound manner, end quote. She sings, I am your mother, I am your sister, I am your dearest friend, and sings about the love that women share in families and societies worldwide. She criticizes the unjust social structures that patriarchy insists on them, writing, you man to whom I gave life, what is mine is less worthy in your eyes. The article explains how the clip aims to make the message universal through the moving of bodies of five dancers from different backgrounds. Through urban and African dances, each woman dances in her own style without artifice, as if to free herself from her chains in solo or in community. The bodies are filmed alone in the middle of an empty space and release sincere and spontaneous emotions on Rebecca's singing, thus participating in this pictorial testimony of female power and vulnerability without any seductive ulterior motive, end quote. I chose this song for today's class, for today's lecture, because the topic for today's class is reproductive justice. Reproductive justice cannot be divorced from the social, political, and historical context. In the last lecture, we spoke about health. The lecture looked at women's health movements, feminist health movements, and the rise of LGBTQ plus health activism. This lecture is quite intertwined with the last one. 
It's broken into a separate lecture in order to prevent any lecture from being too long. However, these lectures are very linked. Today, we are going to be speaking about reproductive justice, reproductive injustices, and reproduction. The first part of this lecture will be looking at the histories of reproductive injustices and the racism and exploitation of the bodies of women of color and the bodies of poor women and people with disabilities. We will look at the racism and classism as intertwined with the development of birth control movements in the early to mid 20th century. We will look at the extremely racist and exploitative history of gynecology. We will look at the testing of birth control methods on women of color without their consent. We look at the histories and current conditions of involuntary and forced sterilization of people with disabilities, indigenous people, women of color, and incarcerated people. We will touch on the forcible removal, removal of children from families of color and indigenous people. We will then look at how these injustices are perpetuated by certain discourses around biology. Class will finish by thinking about what reproductive justice looks like in the future, and by discussing ectogenesis and environmental discourse. First, we'll, we will begin by talking about the definition of reproductive justice. It is a term that I first brought up in our lectures about housework and the document from the Wages for Housework Committee from New York City. Reproductive justice is a framework and movement that links reproductive health and rights with social justice. The reproductive justice movement emphasizes that reproductive health is not only based on individual choice, but also a variety of factors and conditions with one's experiences, family, and community. While many people see abortion rights as their main issue, and it is indeed important, many people, and in particular women of color and people of color and low-income folks, often have difficulty accessing contraception, comprehensive sex education, sexually transmitted infection prevention and care, alternative birth options, adequate prenatal and pregnancy care, domestic violence assistance, adequate wages to support families, safe homes, and so much more. Even the right to parent is often threatened. Reproductive justice addresses all of these critical issues. I'm going to play a few minutes of a clip in which Loretta Ross of Sister Song speaks about reproductive justice. I link to the full video in the transcript, which has auto-captions, so you can watch the entire video. Loretta J. Ross is an African-American academic feminist and activist who advocates for reproductive justice, especially among women of color. As an activist, Ross has written on reproductive justice activism and the history of African-American women. In 1976, at the age of 23, Ross experienced sterilization abuse. Because of this experience, she found her passion advocating for reproductive justice and radical politics. In 1997, with Luez Rodriguez and 14 others, Ross co-founded Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, which aims to build an effective network between individuals in advocating improvements within institutional policies that impact the reproductive lives of marginalized communities. Ross served as the national coordinator for the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective from 2005 until 2012. Ross was one of the African one of the African American women who coined the term reproductive justice with the aim to frame the pursuit of reproductive justice using the social justice framework. I'm now going to begin the clip in which Ross is speaking. We first of all believe that as women of color, we have the right to have children, which is not always a given. 
in a white supremacist society, <laughs> okay? So we have to fight for the right to have children, but we also join the larger pro-choice movement in fighting for the right not to have children. You know, so we, even though we have this diversity of opinion within Sister Song, we took a vote and we decided that we were officially pro-choice with a minority position. And we believe that people should have a right to practice abortion, terminate a pregnancy, uh, use birth control or abstain if you can hold on. I mean, whatever works for you. What I say, whatever floats your balloon. <laughs> but we also recognize, and this is our third core reproductive justice principle, and that is we also, as women of color, have to fight for the right to parent the children that we have because our right to parent our children is constantly interfered with. I mean, our kids are tracked out of schools in the jail so fast, often the parents aren't notified <laughs> that this is happening. Uh, the foster care system discriminates against us. The immigration authorities don't care if they're jerking a mother away from a five-month-old baby and sent, deporting her back. And I mean, they just do all these very, very unjust things to communities of color that interfere with our right to parent something that is taken for granted in the mainstream community, we have to fight for every day. And so the right to have a child, not to have a child, and to parent our children are our core values that we started with in 1997. There, of course, are historical examples of reproductive oppression that we point out. The forced breeding of African-American women during slavery, of course, stands without comment. Though I have to say that in today's society, when you have so many right-wingers claiming that abortion is black genocide, we tend to thwart their arguments by re resurrecting the concept of forced breeding of African-American women and arguing that you shall not re-enslave us to suit your political agenda. And generally, that tends to make people who are leaning their way back up and say, oh, wait a moment. This is actually what that would mean. Sterilization abuse was rampant up until the mid-1970s, and it was a um, Native American woman named Connie Urey, who was a doctor, uh, a Native doctor, who actually drew attention to the federal government's funding of sterilization abuse of indigenous women through the Indian Health Services. They used to call sterilizations, because they were so common, they used to call them Mississippi appendectomies. And it was very rampant in the Deep South to illegally sterilize uh, black and Latina women. It was just, you know, particularly Mexican-American women. Uh, but Puerto Rican women in the 1950s were massively sterilized as well. Uh, there was a film made on Puerto Rican sterilization abuse called La Operacion that I recommend. Uh, Dr. Helen Rodriguez Trias helped produce this film that is very much available. Limiting access to fact and based and scientifically accurate sexual education information I think is a form of reproductive oppression. Uh, Restricting and criminalizing immigrants is a form of reproductive oppression. We are now seeing an increasing wave of incarceration 
of women for pregnancy behaviors, whether they are using drugs while they're pregnant, drinking while they're pregnant, or simply refusing to stay at home on bed rest while they're pregnant. And we are now finding doctors, of course, forcing unnecessary cesareans on women. The whole welfare reform process, I mean, welfare itself, even before it was reformed, was abusive of women's rights, let's be clear. But they made it even more destructive. And particularly, they attached the population control angle to it by putting these family caps on it. And y'all know what family caps are, limiting the number of children women who, have what, who receive public assistance can get. And of course, our federal policies against abortion, against all the restrictions attached to HIV, AIDS, money, the global gag rule. Y'all know the story, right? This is not new information. So we have learned to define this constellation of issues that I've talked about, like the immigration restrictions and the population control policies, as reproductive oppression. And so we have created this term so that we can have a more inclusive vision of what we're talking about. Here is its formal definition. Reproductive oppression is the control and exploitation of women girls, and individuals. And we added the concept of individuals to recognize that, we, that it is inclusive. We want to make sure that we included transgender individuals in our definition through our bodies, our sexuality, our labor, and our reproduction. What we find is that through reproductive oppression, you can control entire communities. Because if you control the ability of a community to have kids, to raise their kids, to parent their kids, you can control that whole community's destiny. There are a few key points that I want to highlight from the video. Women of color have had to fight for the right to have children. The organization of Sister Song joined with the pro-choice movement for the right to not have children and people to have the right to have abortions, use birth control, or abstain. Women of color have had to fight for the right to parent the children they have. Those are the three core principles that the organization started with. Loretta Ross then speaks to histories of reproductive oppression. The forced breeding of enslaved African-American women, and we can expand this to African-Canadian women. Sterilization abuse and the research by Dr. Connie Urey on the forced sterilization of indigenous women in the United States the criminalization of pregnant women, unnecessary cesareans forced on women, the population control and family caps on welfare public assistance, the restrictions on HIV research funding, the global gag rule, which is the United States government policy that blocks U.S. federal funding for non-governmental organizations, NGOs, that provide abortion counseling or referrals, advocate to decriminalize abortion, or expand abortion services. And finally, by not having comprehensive sexual education, you're keeping people from learning about their bodies. These injustices are reproductive oppression. The definition is the control and exploitation of girls, women, and individuals through bodies, sexuality, labor, and reproduction, both biological and social, by families, communities, institutions, and society. As Ross says, they have individuals in that definition because they want to be trans-inclusive and inclusive to non-binary folks. The key line I want to draw your attention to is what Ross ends with. 
Through reproductive oppression, you can control entire communities. If you control a community's ability to have kids, to raise kids, to parent their kids, you can control a community's destiny. As we talked about in the last lecture, access to knowledge about bodies is a key component of social justice. Loretta Ross also touched on some of these histories of reproductive oppression, but I will speak about this topic in a bit more detail. So to begin, gynecology has very racist origins. From 1845 to 1849, J. Marion Sims was a gynecologist who purchased three black women who were enslaved in Alabama, Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy, who were suffering from vesico-vaginal fistulas, which are openings that develop between the bladder and the wall of the vagina. The result is that urine leaks out of the vagina, sometimes lightly, but it can be steady if the fistula is large. Anarcha was operated on 30 times without anesthesia. He experimented on them with his untested surgical experiments. To repeat, he repeatedly performed genital surgery on black women without anesthesia because she believed that black women don't feel pain. It wasn't until the success of these operations that he began to operate on white women, this time under anesthesia. These experiments continued to be considered oftentimes within the medical profession to be a step towards modern vaginal surgery and allowed Sims to design medical instruments, including the speculum. Despite his inhumane tests on black women, Sims was named the father of modern gynecology, and his statue currently stands right outside of the New York Academy of Medicine. Gynecological medicine and research on sexually transmitted infections also have racist roots. The U.S. Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee was a clinical study conducted between 1932 and 1972 by the United States Public Health Service, but it would be more apt to call this a form of manslaughter. During this experiment, researchers lied to African-American men in the study, telling them that they were receiving free health care from the federal government of the United States, when in fact the purpose of this study was to observe what happened to bodies when syphilis went untreated. The men who had syphilis were never informed of their diagnosis, despite the risk of infecting others and the fact that the disease could lead to blindness, deafness, mental illness, heart disease, bone deterioration, collapse of the central nervous system, and death. During the 40-year period of which this extremely racist and unethical experiment happened, none of the infected men were treated with penicillin despite the fact that by 1947, the antibiotic had become the standard, standard treatment for syphilis. Many of the men in the study died of syphilis. Many of their partners and wives were infected, and their children also suffered health issues as a result of this. It is because of the legacy of this cruelty of this study that medical research ethics boards began in the late 1970s. Access to birth control movements also have racist and classist origins tied to eugenics. While Planned Parenthood now supports anti-racist work and a platform of reproductive justice, its founder, Margaret Sanger, was influenced by eugenics, and Sanger leaves a complicated legacy. On the one hand, she worked to empower women to control their fertility and, via birth control, be able to control their pregnancies. Sanger believed that a woman would not ever truly be free until she had the right to determine whether or not she wanted to be a mother and acted on these beliefs by starting a campaign to educate women about sex. She did this while also working as a nurse, treating those who had resorted to illegal and unsafe methods of abortion. 
she focused on poor women. On the other hand, she was also tied to the eugenics movement. Eugenics is a racist, classist, and ableist practice and set of beliefs that allegedly aims to improve the genetic quality of a human population by deciding who is allegedly fit to breed or unfit to reproduce. Eugenics of the 20th century comes from a misapplication of Charles Darwin's work on evolution and is a form of social Darwinism in which some groups of people were deemed fit to reproduce and some as unfit. Here we see the application of white supremacy. Under eugenics, poor people were deemed to be unfit. People of color were deemed to be unfit. We see this applied to people with disabilities and also to people who committed crimes. What this resulted in was either encouraging certain groups of people to use birth control or the practice of forced sterilizations or at the most extreme, genocide. We can look to the court case of Buck v. Bell in 1927, which involved the forced sterilization of Carrie Buck, who was declared feeble-minded in Virginia, in Virginia, the state of Virginia, in 1924. She was raped and later forcibly sterilized, and her sister also sterilized. In the decision for Buck v. Bell, the court ruled that a state statute permitting compulsory sterilization of the unfit, including the intellectually disabled, was for the protection of the health of the state, and that it did not violate due process clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This court case allowed the continued forced sterilization of people with disabilities in the United States for many years to come. In Canada, we have similar examples, such as Alberta's Sexual Sterilization Act, which continued until 1972. We can see how eugenics movements get used today and in the past to argue for population control as part of environmental movements. This discourse places the blame of climate catastrophe on women's bodies rather than the major polluters of the world. This population control rhetoric creates especially harmful narratives about women in the developing world. Reproductive oppression includes the forced sterilization of people with disabilities, indigenous people, women of color, and incarcerated people. Coercive sterilizations continue today in the prison context in which incarcerated people, especially women, are coerced into sterilizations to get out of prison sooner. A study conducted by the U.S. General Accounting Office found that four of the 12 Indian Health Service regions sterilized 3,406 American indigenous women without their permission between 1973 and 1976. An independent study by Dr. Connie Pinkerton-Uri, who is Choctaw Cherokee, found that one in four American indigenous women have been sterilized without her consent. Pinkerton-Uri's research indicated that the Indian Health Service had singled out full-blooded Indian women for sterilization procedures. So that's the language used from the period of both the studies. We can see reproductive oppression in the history of the birth control pill in Puerto Rican women. In the 1950s, researchers experimented on early forms of hormonal birth control, which became the pill without their informed consent. The women who were given the pills were only told that they would prevent pregnancy, yet the researchers lied or did not tell them about the potential health and safety risks of taking the pills. The women were administered 10 milligrams of the experimental combination of estrogen and progesterone, more commonly known as Envoid, the first contraceptive pill. Envoid contained up to 10 times the now acceptable dose of hormones found in modern-day birth control. 
We can see reproductive oppression in the history of birth. We can see this through the criminalization of midwives. We can see this in the history of twilight sleep birth, in which doctors gave women morphine and scopolamine while giving birth. The women would either be restrained on their beds by their wrists and ankles or put into straitjackets. Many women would thrash around, bang their heads on walls, claw at themselves or staff, and scream constantly. They would remain on the beds, bound and screaming, blindfolded, often lying in their own vomit and waste for as long as it took for labor to end. We can see this in the high rates of maternity mortality, especially for black women in the United States. According to an article by Harvard Public Health, to which I linked in the transcripts, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, now estimates that 700 to 900 new and expectant mothers die in the United States each year, and an additional 500,000 women experience life-threatening postpartum complications. More than half of these deaths, and near deaths, are are from preventable causes, and a disproportionate number of women suffering are black. We can also see this in the epidemic of obstetric abuse. According to doulas, women are often treated horribly while they're in labor, with medical professionals often engaging in abusive behavior that ranges from non-consensual episiotomies to sexual assault. As Loretta Ross talked about in the clip, we can see this with forced cesareans. We can see this with medical students doing vaginal examinations on unconscious patients without their consent. We can also see this with the husband stitch. The husband stitch occurs during the repair of an episiotomy, also known as a perineotomy, which is the incision made in the perineum, the tissue between the vaginal opening and the anus during childbirth, and the surgical cut is sometimes done to aid a difficult delivery and prevent rupture of tissues. It is also done when stitching a cut in or vaginal tear after birth. The husband stitch is the term for an extra stitch that some women say they have received. This procedure takes place after delivery to decrease the size of a woman's vaginal opening so that they can be tighter for their husband's pleasure. It has no approved medical use or benefit. It is often done without the consent of the patient. Of the patient, It can lead to serious health effects. It can lead to pain during sex. It is based on heteronormative sexist beliefs. We can see reproductive injustice and the lack of support for people experiencing postpartum depression and research on postpartum depression. In the history of AIDS, we can see reproductive oppression in the histories of government administrations, such as the Reagan administration, refusing to even acknowledge AIDS for years. We can look to the history of the lack of funds allocated to HIV and AIDS research until activists in ACT UP drew attention to people dying. We can see this in a lack of access to PrEP, HIV prevention drugs. As Loretta Ross discussed, we can see reproductive oppression in the forcible removal of children from families of people of color and indigenous people. We can see this in Canada with the legacy of the 60 scoop, which refers to a practice that occurred in Canada of taking or scooping up indigenous children from their families and communities for placement in foster homes or adoption. Despite the reference to one decade, the 60s scoop began in the late 1950s and persisted into the 1980s. Indigenous families are still torn apart today. We can see this in the way that Black families are ripped apart more often by the state. For more resources on this topic, see the work of Dorothy Roberts, who who has written the books 
Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare from 2002, and Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty from 1997, in which she writes a powerful and authoritative account of the ongoing assault, both figurative and literal, waged by the American government and our society on the reproductive rights of black women. We can see this in the history of the removal of children from LGBTQ plus families, saying that queer parents were mentally ill and unfit to parent. We can see this in the ways that LGBTQ plus people have had a harder time adopting. Again, as Ross said, it is important to think about who is allowed to parent. These are all reproductive injustices. We can see how these injustices are perpetuated by certain discourses around biology. We can see the ways in which our language shapes the way that we think about the body and bodies and how that constructs the way we think about power in relation to bodies. This brings us to one of the readings for today, Emily Martin's 1991 piece, The Egg and the Sperm, How Science Has Constructed a Romance Based on Stereotypical Male-Female Roles. Martin here speaks primarily about a two-sex gender binary system in this piece as she is addressing texts like medical texts that do the same. In the piece, she focuses on the language used to describe bodies. Biology textbooks speak about the female body as wasteful. These texts construct the male as dominant. She asks readers to think about why, if we view menstruation as wasteful, don't we see penile ejaculation as wasteful also? For example, Martin notes that our perception on menstruation is usually negative and misogynistic. We tend to think of menstruation as a failure because the egg is not fertilized and the woman's uterine tissues begin to break down or slough off. Martin ascribes this perception to linguistic and cultural gender bias. Words used to describe menstruation imply failure, dirtiness, structured breakdown and destruction, and wounds. By contrast, We do not perceive the shedding of the stomach lining as a structural failure. This wound perception is reinforced by the fact that during menstruation, the woman bleeds and may suffer from pain and discomfort. Martin contends that menstruation is a normal physiological function and process and not a dirty thing or secret illness. Rather, we can think about menstruation as being viewed as a success, the success of the female body in avoiding pregnancy. The success of a female body in ridding itself of potentially harmful material from the uterus, yet our language and culture prevents this. Such gender bias is also responsible for our tendency to praise males for their amazing ability to produce a huge amount of sperm, despite the fact that sperm is a lot cheaper biologically to produce compared to the egg, and the sperm suffer an extremely high mortality in the female reproductive tract. Another example of Martin's feminist analysis of reproduction involves the egg and the sperm. The egg, the woman, in Martin's view, reinforces our culture's view of passive damsel in distress image, while the active sperm, the man, races to the egg to penetrate her. The truth is, the egg is not so easy to penetrate as commonly believed. One sperm is not powerful enough to penetrate an egg. The egg's barrier can only be weakened by the collective efforts of a number of sperm. Martin suggests alternative descriptions of fertilization that give the egg a less passive role. She notes that the research at Johns Hopkins University has shown that the sperm does not have a powerful thrust and fertilization occurs because the egg traps the sperm. When it comes to sex, why do we, why do we use language such as the penis penetrates the vagina? Why use the word penetrate? 
Why not use the word engulf? The vagina engulfs the penis. The words here denote power. Martin speaks to the issue with the metaphors being used in science as reifying specific power structures. Martin's analysis yields four main lessons. One, we think we know a lot because of science in this age, but the truth is the way we interpret science is or can be sexist. Two, such gender bias reinforces gender inequality and continues to keep our traditional misogyny alive. Three, we have to realize our mistakes and strive to achieve a new understanding with total fairness. And four, we must ensure we will not make the past mistakes to future generations since they're really harmful for human understanding as well as gender relations. So those are kind of Martin's four main points. We can also add to Martin's work to think about the way of the gender binary or lack of acknowledgement of intersex folks and heteronormative assumptions in science and how that causes harm. Building on this work is Barbara Duden's 1993 text, Disembodying Women. In this book, she takes a closer look at the, compare, at the contemporary transformation of women's experience of pregnancy. She suggests that advances in technology and parallel changes in public discourse have reframed pregnancy as a managed process, the mother as an ecosystem and the fetus as an endangered species. She basically looks at the history of technologies used to look at pregnant women's bodies and the fetus. She says that these technologies shift the way this, that society thinks about pregnant women, their control over their own bodies, and the fetus. While Martin was looking at the language of science, and we can think about the language of biology textbooks to understand how the language of science shapes the way we think about sex, gender, and bodies, Duden looks at how certain technologies shape the way we think about bodies and gender and power. She talks about how new ways of seeing the body produce new ways of experiencing the body and argues that because technology allows us to penetrate that once secret enclosure of the womb, the image of the fetus exposed to the public has eclipsed that of woman in the public mind. In earlier times, a woman knew she was pregnant when she experienced quickening. She felt movement within her, the kicking of the feet. Today, a woman relies on what she sees in a test result or digital sonogram image to confirm her pregnancy. A private experience once mediated by women themselves has become a public experience interpreted and controlled by medical professionals. In Disembodying Women, Barbara Duden takes a closer look at this contemporary transformation of women's experience of pregnancy. Drawing on extensive historical research, Duden traces the graphic techniques from anatomist drawings to woodcuts to x-rays and ultrasound used to flay the female body and turn it inside out. She emphasizes the iconic power of the visual within 20th century culture, which we can now expand to 21st century culture. She draws attention to Leonard Nilsson's now famous photographs of the embryo published in Life magazine in the mid-1960s and how they changed the way society conceptualized the relationship between mother and fetus. By focusing on the fetus as something separate from the mother, this technology enabled a discourse of talking about fetuses differently. She talks about how this kind of visual, via technology, unveils some mysteries, but also changes our perceptions and takes away credence to some of the unknown. It shifts the power. I've included one of these Nilsson images in the transcript. Martin talks about the power of language in shaping our relationship with sex and reproduction. Duden talks about the power of visuals. Language and visuals shape gender and power relations. 
and relationships. Taken to the extreme, this fetus is seen as completely separate from the mother. This leads us to ectogenesis, which is the development of embryos in artificial conditions outside of the uterus. This right now for humans is more in the stage of science fiction. I've included in the transcript a link to a video of a conceptual ectogenesis pod, which these pods are marketed as allowing parents the ability to work more efficiently and still be able to have a baby. It is marketed towards upper middle class couples, and in the video, it is a straight heteronormative family that is shown. This video raises a lot of questions about who would have access to these technologies, who would pay for them, what this would do for gender dynamics, and more. It is definitely the stuff of science fiction. The video is entitled, Concept Incubator Would Grow Your Babies at Home by Tech Insider in 2017. The following points are made not to denigrate technologies, mostly being developed at the moment to help premature babies survive. However, these technologies also raise important ethical questions that impact discussions of abortion, consent, and so forth. This is a great, there is a great episode of the Flash Forward podcast hosted by Rose Eveleth, to which I have linked in the transcript on the topic of ectogenesis. Like Duden's work on the images of the fetus and the role of technology, conceptualizations of ectogenesis raise questions of how technology changed and can change women, can change understandings of women's bodies, trans men's bodies, and gender non-binary parents' bodies and relationships with the fetus and the fetus outside of the body. We can also see how these technologies are marketed and shaped very much by language. Ectogenesis raises some questions about abortion rights and the legal arguments that presently protect abortion rights. This brings us to a very classic text from 1971, Judith Jarvis Thompson's A Defense of Abortion. Judith Jarvis Thompson is an American moral philosopher and metaphysician. She is known for her defense of moral objectivity, her account of moral rights, her views about the incompleteness of the term good, and her use of thought experiments to make philosophical points. She is most famous for her 1971 essay, A Defense of Abortion, which bases abortion rights on the pregnant woman's right to control her own body and its life support functions, rather than attempting to deny the personhood of the fetus. In this text, She uses a series of metaphors in order to make her argument. She begins with saying that people against abortion spend most of their time defining the fetus as a person, but not saying why then abortion shouldn't be allowed. She says, let's have a different argument. She uses this piece to say that even if you agree that the fetus is a person, which at the end of the essay she says the fetus isn't a person, but even if you agree that the fetus is a person, abortion should still be allowed. She breaks down the right to life argument. She begins with her famous violinist metaphor, in which you are kidnapped and attached to a violinist in order for them to survive. This is a metaphor for rape. In this section on the violinist, Thompson says, Abortion does not violate the fetus's legitimate right to life, but merely deprives the fetus of something, the non-consensual use of the pregnant woman's body and life support functions, to which it has no right. Thus, by choosing to terminate her pregnancy, Thompson concludes that a pregnant woman does not normally violate the fetus's right to life, but merely withdraws its use of her own body, which usually causes the fetus to die. 
Her next example is the expanding child in which you're trapped in a house and a child keeps expanding and will crush you to death. This is an argument about third-party participation and whether or not someone can help you obtain an abortion to acknowledge the mother's right over her body or property. The next example has to do with people seeds and it's about pregnancy resulting from voluntary intercourse and what happens when birth control fails, the condom breaks, the pill doesn't work, etc. She also has arguments regarding Good Samaritan laws, which actually differ by country, and examples that relate to what if a celebrity could cure a disease, would that celebrity be required to go around touching everybody? Her final points are that she doesn't argue that abortion is always permissible, especially regarding late-term abortions, unless they're medically necessary. She also is against infanticide. So this is quite a classic piece. I want us to think about this piece in relationship to ectogenesis and reproductive justice. What does ectogenesis mean for issues of consent? What if the fetus is incubated without consent of the mother? How will this impact discussions around abortion? How does Jarvis answer some of these questions? Within reproductive justice, securing the legal right to have an abortion is key, but what does the right mean if there is not actually access? Action Canada draws attention to the lack of access for rural women in Canada to obtain abortions. The MIFI pill can enable some expanded access. During this pandemic, we have also seen the rise of some states and provinces enabling telemedicine consultations for abortion. However, at the same time, we have seen continual cuts in the states to abortion rights in which burdensome and cruel laws, such as mandating that survivors of rape inform their rapists that they are getting an abortion, mandating long waiting periods, making it extremely difficult for clinics to practice abortions, and death threats to abortion providers. I've linked to a video clip in the transcript on the history in the United States of the religious right deciding to focus on banning abortion as political strategy, entitled On How the Religious Right Mobilized Around Banning Abortion as a Political Strategy. Abortion is part of reproductive justice. I want to finish today's lecture with something I talked about in the last lecture with the birth control handbook. Reproductive justice is about social justice and is also about pleasure. Is about having an equal right to being able to experience pleasure, an argument made by Donna Cherniak, one of the creators of the birth control handbook. The next lecture will be on the topics of disability and ableism. The opening bell sound is school bell dot wave from 13F Panska, Transka, Michaela, and the closing bell is Inspector J's bell counter a dot wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted unauthorized use of copyright materials for specific mandated purposes in Canada. These purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and privacy, education, parodies, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.